Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Off Air with me, Jane Garvey, and me, Fee Glover. Now, we are fresh from our brand new Times radio show, but we just cannot be contained by two hours of live broadcasting. So we've kept the microphones on, grabbed a cuppa, and are ready to say what we really think. Unencumbered and off air. Now, um, it's always lovely to hear from you and we've got some interesting emails to read later. Um, also, I enjoyed the part of our radio show today here at Times Radio when we discussed Hangxiety with Jane Mulcairins of The Times magazine. Yeah. We had a preview copy. You can read it on Saturday because Hangxiety is the fog of despair that can descend the morning after. I certainly get it. Have you always got it? Or I is it one of those things that's crept up in middle age? Never been a big drinker, never been able to really process alcohol terribly successfully, whilst, like a lot of people, needing alcohol occasionally to get me through an evening. And more than that, I enjoy a drink. But I probably only enjoy one drink. I just wish I had the wit to stop at wandering. I have to say, the number of times that I I've know. met you the day after. Yes, and, I know. And you I have know. said, oh, I just can't believe I had three because glasses. But it's only that. You've only ever had two or three oh, glasses yeah, or something. Oh, yeah, I'm never, ever, ever a really massive drinker. I just, I think actually often when you become a parent, you just have to pack it in. Yeah, because I packed it in for a long time. You don't time have the option. Kids. Yep, to be... totally, totally. And in fact, I gave up booze altogether for a year because I just couldn't be bothered when the kids were small. Yeah, it brought me no... Funny joy and no. just the, the sleep you don't want to mess with your sleep oh no never because you it's just simply a fact so that you precious. sleep better when you've not had any kind of alcohol at all but i mean to go back to the middle-aged anxiety it's a thing and if you get hangovers in your 20s by the time you get to my age it's just it's just grim it's like wading through a sea of really past its best custard the next day when you've had too much to drink you How just rancid. feel yeah you feel really down yeah uh, i think i agree with you i think it's a very uh, it's interesting to identify something different that's happening because i i remember my hangovers from my 20s and 30s uh, some of them were you know, just ridiculous. But they, they weren't accompanied by some kind of uh, psychological 
change actually and I think drinking in my now mid 50s it just it just would be so I like the fact that I always love reading about something where you go that's me. Yes, yeah. that's me. So it's a good piece. And we should be aware, actually, I guess people listening to Off Air will often be those people who haven't been able to listen to the live radio show. I thought you were going to say people listening to Off Air will be completely drunk. Some of so them will. Absolutely um, no sense at all. And just to give you an idea of the Times Radio live show, it's two hours, three till five, of a mix of the very serious. We do do all the big news stories of the day with informed opinion. Um, but then we're also allowed to waddle around in the reeds of trivia. The reeds of trivia. Yes. Yes, okay. I, I agree with that. And we had some juxtapositions on the programme today as well, didn't we? Yeah, well, we did. Yeah. Because we were talking uh, at the end of the programme to Tony Turnbull, the Times' food editor, about very, very expensive tinned fish. And he brought in, to delight us, a little cup of cockles that cost £56. I, I really couldn't believe You that. ate the cockle. I can't try a cockle. I've had, so, I've certainly not three, at work. Three cockles today. <laughs> Before today, never had a cockle in my life. <laughs> do you know, I can't really do tin fish on duty, but I did it today. Uh, but we were talking about this very, very kind of high-end stuff that's being served. And the in the previous hour, we talked about the cost of living crisis and uh, the fact that the free school meals uh, campaign uh, is now being backed by a lot of people to be extended throughout the holidays. You know, there are estimated to be about 1.4 million kids who are still not getting a hot, nutritious meal uh, who are desperately in need of that. Uh, so, you know, we've got uh, we've got different ends of the spectrum going on. And Richard Walker is the managing director of Iceland. And he came on to tell us a little bit more about what his supermarket is doing and why he's backing that free school meals campaign. If every kid who's in a family who's in receipt of universal credit was given a free school meal, that would equate to about £500 million in the first year. And do you have any idea how that would balance out with savings? Because there are always savings, aren't there, uh, to be made perhaps in terms of health or missed days off school, all those other yeah. things uh, that, that happen when a kid becomes ill through bad nutrition. Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. You know, if we're to succeed long term as a nation, uh, sort out our chronic productivity problem, our growth problem, we need to make sure we've got a healthy, engaged, focused, happy school population who have got decent prospects, including the most vulnerable kids. And in terms of return on investment, I can't think of anything better than that to invest in the ability of young kids to concentrate and learn in school. So we all know that we're going to be facing cuts. They've been described as eye-watering already, so perhaps this mm. isn't going to happen. I know that plenty of people listening this afternoon will be already saying, well, look, I mean, you're a food supplier. Why don't you do something more directly than just support somebody else's campaign to change the free school meals programme? Yeah, um, no, that's a very fair point. And there's two elements to that. I mean, 500 million is a lot of money, but in the context of, I don't know, 100 billion that they're spending on HS2, I can think of better places to spend the money. Uh, but secondly, yeah, it is absolutely not all down to government. It is on the private sector, on business as well, to do whatever we can to try and support our customers because we've got 5 million customers a week and many of them are on universal credit. Many of them have kids who are missing out on free school meals and therefore we're trying to do everything we can as a business through a range of kind of tactical promotions and activities and food hacks and ideas 
to support our customers through the cost of living crisis. So give us some examples of those things. Yeah, so um, one pound meals are very important to our core customer. Um, So we've held the price of all of those through this year into next year. We've actually introduced 50 more one pound lines and we used to make 25% profit on that. Now we'll lose about 15% profit. So it's a loss leader but it's the right thing to do. Sorry, we run those figures with... past me again. You used to make a 25% mm. profit on a £1 meal. Yeah, yeah. And now, you know, we're, we're losing money on it. But, you know, we think it's the right thing to do to, to invest, uh, to, to make sure that our customers can access that £1 price point. We partnered with the Rothsay Foundation, who are a, 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 um, a pension provider, to give £30 vouchers to the most vulnerable pensioners because pensioner poverty is a big issue. We're giving a 10% discount to anyone over the age of 60 in our stores every Tuesday. We're promoting air fryers because they have the ability to save a household £600 a year compared to using a a conventional um, oven. Um, There's a a whole range of different things that that we can do, Mm. but we need to do more and we're working day and night to do so. Just on those £1 meals, what are those Mm. meals? And are they hand-on-heart nutritious? Oh, yeah. No, of course they are. I mean, you know, we we can talk about, like, £10 chilled ready meals at M&S, but there is nothing wrong with um, high-nutritious ready meal. Um, If it's frozen... It saves you money because we have longer supply chains. We work very closely with our suppliers. You can also save, eliminate food waste, which is a, a big uh, cause of waste in household budgets because you use what you want and then and then put the the because uh, it's not all just ready meals. You know, it's uh, fr- fruit, veg, you know, all, all sorts of things, chips, etc. Put it back in the freezer so you can budget better through the week. And absolutely, I mean, you know, the, our, our products are great and we're proud of all of them. Mm. Interestingly. We also have a luxury range, uh, which is higher price points, about between £3 to £5 for ready meals. They're trading very well because a lot of customers are trading down from more expensive supermarkets, and that's an entry price point for them uh, to have, shop with us. Yeah, have your rates of shoplifting gone up? Yeah, they have. I get, um, I get a serious incidents report every Monday. And it is noticeable. You know, it's always always been an issue, but it is noticeable that it is going up. I don't think it's right to make value judgments on on the people doing it, although some of them are, are violent incidents. And, and you know, our, our staff safety is paramount. But clearly, people are really struggling. They're struggling to make ends meet. And, um, you know, I think obviously with the news today, it's, it's going to get worse. We're seeing that. Uh, it's going to be a very tough winter. So we've got to be mindful of that. Yeah. I mean, it must place you in such a difficult position uh, when you are running a shop. And as you've demonstrated, uh, you are trying to do something uh, with good conscience to help your customers. I mean, without wanting some kind of a free for all on your shelves, does Iceland change its policy on prosecutions if you know that some of your customers are taking stuff just because they need to keep their kids' stomach full that day? No, I mean, um, we're not a charity and we can't can't sort of condone just giving away or people taking food. It's very important that we have processes in place that firstly uh, protect our staff, but secondly, protect our stock. And actually our job, is to work day and night to provide the best quality food at the cheapest possible price. And there's nothing wrong with cheap food so that our five million customers a week can feed their families. Mm. Uh, How far can you take your profit margin down? Well, we're going to lose money this year and we lost money last year. 
Part of that is because of input cost inflation, you know, the cost of goods that we're buying, uh, price increases from our suppliers, and there'll be, there'll be more to come as well. Uh, but part of it is operational cost, things like our electricity bill, which you can imagine is horrific because there's a lot of fridges and freezers and, you know, business faces the same issues that consumers face. So, you know, that's that's where we're at. But actually, we're a private family business. We've got deep cash reserves. We'll be OK and we'll get through it. And actually, I think it's incumbent on any business to probably accept lower profit margins because we've got to support our customers through this cost of living mm. crisis. That was Richard Walker, the Managing Director of Iceland. Yes, I um, I don't doubt his commitment to the free school meals programme. The one pound frozen meal, I know he said it was a loss leader. Do you think he ever eats one of them himself? I don't know. I'm sure if we asked him, he would say that he did and that he thoroughly enjoyed them. I did mm. look them up. They're things like lasagna, cottage pie, okay. fish pie, uh uh, you know, st- stuff. And you, you stick them in the microwave so you don't need to worry about paying for putting the oven on. Yes, I mean, uh, yeah, so the oven or micro- microwaveable, obviously they are frozen. They're quite big portions. Uh, you know, I was amazed actually that they used to make 25% profit on them at £1 a pop. Uh, so his argument for that was very interesting. It's a very long supply chain of its frozen food because, you know, elements of it are frozen for years at a time. Oh. I know, I know. So, and, and a few listeners had texted in to say, you know, oh, you know, your profits are going to be down. Boo hoo. But do you know what, Jane? I think anybody who's doing something in a time of crisis, he's running a business. So, what's the point in wishing that he goes under if they're trying to serve their customers and, you know, not go out of business and therefore lots of people lose jobs? Uh, I think is to be commended. 
Welcome back to Off Air with Jane and Fee and our interview of uh, Thursday afternoon was with a film director, documentary maker. Well, he's done feature films, hasn't he? Um, in fact, he did the big one about Marie Colvin with Rosamund Pike. And now he's done a documentary called Retrograde about the American withdrawal from Afghanistan. His name is Matthew Heinemann. And we talked to him and asked why he'd wanted to make this very specific film in that very troubled country, Afghanistan. The genesis, I guess, in some sense for the film was was a somewhat cliched question that I had in my mind of why we fight wars and pondering it quite deeply about five or six years ago and began an exploration within the U.S. military trying to, you know, seek that answer. It led to conversations with U.S. Army Green Berets and spent about two years gaining access to them. And by the time that happened, it became clear that wow, actually we could maybe tell the story about the end of the war in Afghanistan. And, and then by, COVID happened, and I was like, oh, wow, we actually might be on the last U.S. deployment to Afghanistan. And so that's what ended up happening. We, we ended up going there, and two months after we were there, President Biden pulled out our troops. And so I was left with this question of what do we do? You know, we don't really have a film here. We have at the beginning of something, but there's obviously a lot of story left. And so that's when I reached back out to General Sami Sadat, who was in charge of southern Afghanistan, who had been working with the Green Braves, and asked them, you know, can, I, can we come back and spend time with you? And, and that's what ended up happening. So the story follows the general as he tries to cope with the advancing Taliban forces, and it ends with the scenes that many people will recognise of thousands of Afghans trying to flee Kabul at the airport. But if we can spool back at uh, the very important start of the film, as you've alluded to, the moment when the troops in Afghanistan are listening to their president saying that their tour of duty and their military mission is over, which is an extraordinary scene to have been able to witness. Did it actually happen in the real time that you show us, the viewers? They are watching uh, on a TV screen them, their president saying, that's it. Yes, yes. Which is remarkable, really, when you think of the impact that that then had on their lives and, as you say, the lives of the people that they're connected with. I mean, that's why I love making films this way. You know, it's, it's a, making observational films where you're shooting 16, 18 hours a day. You know, I don't go into these films with any script, any goal in mind, any preordained notion of what the story will be or what, what it'll end up being. You know, you discovered along the way. The central character in the film is the guy you mentioned, General Sami Sadat. Um, tell us a little bit about him. Where was he educated? So General Sadat was, was educated, you know, in the West um, and then came back to Afghanistan and held various positions within the Afghan intelligence and, and military. In the film, he's 35 years old, two-star general in charge of 15,000 troops in southern Afghanistan. So he had, he had an enormous, enormous burden on his shoulders and felt like the weight of the world, you know, was, was upon him to hold his country together. But did he think at the start of that American withdrawal that actually he could be victorious? Yes, yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's sort, of, sort of the narrative tension in the, in the movie, right, is, is metaphorically speaking, every neon sign was saying, stop, you're, you're going to lose, uh, especially as, as time went on um, and we got closer to the end of the summer of 2021, 20, give up, surrender. But, you know, he had this steadfast belief that maybe, just maybe, if he held on to Helmand, if he held on to 
Lashkar Gar that that maybe Afghanistan w- would hold together. Well, what do you think uh, about President Biden's decision? Uh, would you have made the same decision if you were him? I'm not a policy expert, you know, and I I I, I can't answer that question any better than you can. Um, by no means with this film did I set out to figure out who did what right or wrong, you know, who's at fault, how do we get here? You know, I get criticized with my film sometimes for not giving context to these problems, but I, I believe that by immersing you into these situations, into these characters, into these, you know, moments in history, that not only is it, is it an important historic document, but it allows viewers to engage in a way that more sort of pointed or, or narrative-driven documentaries don't. You know, I, I'm trying to get people to, to feel and to care uh, about this conflict that has really left the headlines. I mean, when I was making the film, it was you know, the biggest news story in the world. Now that we're talking here on the radio, you know, no one's talking about Afghanistan. And so I hope, among many things, that the film reignites a conversation about this, you know, two decade long war that we have, you know, completely left behind. But I guess a lot of people, a lot of voters in America will just be thinking, well, actually, I'm really grateful that our young people are not at risk in this place anymore, that that is at least something we don't have to worry about. And it's the, it's the same for, I mean, Britain lost service people too. Um, it was horrific. Absolutely. I think that the interesting thing, at least in the U.S., is that this does not break down along neat ideological lines. You can, you can talk to people on the, on the left, and they feel awful that we left. They feel awful that women, can't, girls can't go to school, and women can't walk outside without their faces covered. The progress that we made on a human rights level has gone back 20 years. You can talk to people on the right and say, you know, we've wasted resources and we shouldn't be at war. I, it, it's not that clean and neat, at least in the U.S., in terms of left and the right. I think every single person has their own views of whether we should have been there in the first place, when we should have left, how we should have left, whether we should have maintained a small presence of troops there. Um, there's there's a myriad of opinions on what should have happened, um, and that's the sort of fog of war. And did the U.S. Army ask to see any of the rushes before the edit or to have any editorial kind of control over the final cut? So that's that was part of the years of getting access is, is, is obviously this was an unprecedented embed with the Special Forces unit of this length. The answer is no. I mean, I never would have agreed if, if they had any creative uh, you know, control over it. They, they did have the ability to look at, from a sort of security point of view, to make sure that we weren't endangering anyone's lives. But ultimately, you know, they, they didn't really have any comments. Uh, we, we knew we knew what, you know, what would endanger people, and we didn't show that. What is the fate, then, of General Sami Sadat? He, he loses, the Taliban take over. What happens to him? Obviously, he, he was, you know, at the top of the list of, of people that the Taliban were trying to find, seek out, and kill. And so he was forced to flee. He fled here to to London. He's still in exile. And as he's announced publicly, he's trying to mobilize an armed resistance to eventually take back the country from the Taliban. He's obviously keenly aware that that is a tall order. um, And and that's not something that's going to happen overnight. But that is something that he is actively pursuing. You know, the sad, the other sad part of the story, obviously, is that we've left thousands and thousands and thousands of people that work for the Brits, people that work for the Americans, who are still living in danger in Afghanistan, um, living in hiding, being threatened by the Taliban. Some are continually, you know, still being killed by the Taliban and hunted down. And we have left them there.
I don't want to preempt anybody else's reaction to watching your film, Matt. I would highly recommend it uh, as something valuable to do with your time. I was left with this terrible sense of futility about war. Just what on earth has the point of that been? Which may just be too naive a reaction. Is it the reaction that you'd like your viewers to have? It's certainly not a unique reaction. Look, I think that's why I love making films this way. Is a you know a hundred different people will walk away with it with a hundred different reactions. That, that certainly is one of them. I mean, that you know that when I was twenty one years old, a mentor of mine said to me, "If you end up with the story you started with, then you weren't listening along the way." Which I think is good advice for life. It's good advice for filmmaking. Is don't be dogmatic. You know, be open to the story changing and evolving. And that's something that I've held incredibly near and dear to my heart in a macro sense of what films I choose to make, and in a micro sense within each shoot within each minute within each second how i point my camera you know look around and and you know be open to the story changing and if i had one goal i think i said it earlier but if i had one goal it would be to get people to feel and care about this conflict more than they are now i feel like it's completely been lost in the news cycle and it's still a living breathing story that is incredibly important women's rights is, have gone away the economy is in free fall. Their healthcare system is non-existent, and you know there's there's thousands and thousands of Afghan and British partners and other you know NATO allies that are living in fear. And so I you know I think I hope at least that conversation uh, happens. That was the director Matt Heineman talking to us about his new documentary Retrograde. You can see it on the National Geographic Challenge. I couldn't say that. I couldn't say that today. I'm going to give that another run up. You can leave it in if you want to. The National Geographic Channel. And there is also a UK cinema release. Yes, and I think, to be honest, if we are honest, and we were honest on the radio show, when we found out we were going to have to watch this documentary, we were both a bit... (laughs) Really? But um, I found that certainly the first couple of minutes and the last couple of minutes, some of the most devastating footage I have ever seen. Beautifully filmed, incredibly poignant, utterly terrifying. Mm. I agree, totally. The thing that I really liked seeing even even more, and perhaps like is the wrong word in that sentence, the thing that I was most interested in seeing and that actually kept me going throughout the whole of the documentary uh, was I don't think that I have seen American soldiers kind of at ease with each other, having conversations with each other in that kind of war setting ever. I've seen fictionalised accounts of it and I've seen news reports of it, but I've never been taken inside an American military base where all of these guys are just shooting the breeze. And actually their personal opinions about the politics around that time are really interesting. They wouldn't be allowed to say that if they were doing a news report. They were critical of what the president had asked them to do. They accepted their fate and they accepted their orders. But uh, you could tell that they felt that they were letting down the Afghan soldiers who they had been training with and who they'd lost many men alongside. So for that reason, uh, I thought it was just an incredible, incredible film, actually. Not not one to go into with without making time in your head for it. It's not a right rollicking, let's get a bowl of popcorn out thing. It is deeply moving. Yes, def- it definitely isn't a go-to entertainment film, no. no. But it will move you. And it will also just make you think, 
What was all that about? Yeah. Because British lives were lost in Afghanistan too. But do you know, know that? Jane, how many times do you need to see what happens in war to think that there's a futility attached to war? I don't know. We, we just we don't seem to learn the lesson, do we? <laughs> Thank you for your emails. Um, how do you email us, Fee? Oh, my goodness. Uh, so you send an email to janeandfee at times.radio. This is from Deborah. Um, does this email herald the start of an inundation going the other way? I really like the music in the off-air podcast, oh, says Deborah. No, don't. No, don't. Don't, don't start a fight. <laughs> she has. I enjoyed the interview with Ian Hislop. I started sneakily reading my dad's copy of Private Eye when I was about nine, i.e. over 40 years ago. And we subsequently shared a subscription until he died. The first time my own copy arrived, still in its wrapper, unread by dad, was a moment of profound grief. I also have a wake-up lamp and I also sleep with the curtains open. These changes have transformed me from a snarling bear first thing in the morning to a reasonable human being. My husband was astonished. He's obsessive about keeping the bedroom totally dark and he had never appreciated the impact this was having on me. Fortunately, the kids started to leave home around this time and the time we discovered this. So we're now able to sleep in separate bedrooms. We compromise when on holiday. Keep up the good work, says Deborah. Compromises everything, Deborah. So well done <laughs> to you and your husband for managing to do it. Do you know what? There was a way that you said compromise that suggests you've said it before. Compromise is, yes, I, I should, yeah, absolutely. I could no more sleep with the curtains open than fly to the moon. It's interesting that... In fact, I think often on television or in films, um, there are scenes set in bedrooms and the curtains are open in the night and in the morning. I just don't get it. And do you want to rush up to the television? But who sleep? I mean, apart from Deborah, I don't. Do people sleep with the curtains open? I mean, exhibitionists might, I suppose. I don't. I don't know. I don't know. What do you do if you've got slatted blinds? <laughs> Right, now this one comes from Julia. You ready for this? Yeah. Dear Jane and Fee, hello from Brisbane, Australia. Huge fan of you two. I'm loving the off-air podcast and the breadth of topics covered and your insight and banter. The one aspect that's troubled me for some years, and I've probably given this too much thought, is the dynamic between you. It's said in every relationship there is one who kisses, i.e. Fee, and one who's kissed. Jane. I feel like Jane is a little bit mean to Fee, who is consistently kind and caring towards her. This may be a projection of my own issues, but Jane, please be kinder to Fee. Love you both to bits. Best wishes, Julia. The only thing I can say to Julia is, yes, you have been giving this too much thought. Not nearly enough thought, Julia, and thank you for mentioning it. Is it very I'm, boring in Brisbane? I'm I doing OK, is all I can say, Julia, but if I blink <laughs> twice, come and get me. Do it okay. She's having the time of her life. There you go. Just uh, off again. Uh, um, Julia, thank you. I'll take it on board. I won't really. <laughs> right. Um, thank you very much for engaging with our twaddle. We really appreciate it. And on Monday, we'll be back with the Times Radio Show between three and five and with Off Air, available in all your usual podcast places at around, what is it, half past six it comes? Yes, it pops mm. into your life about half six. And big name guest on Monday afternoon. We're both thrilled. It is Monty Don, and I'm very much hoping he's going to come in a smock. <laughs> You have been listening to Off Air with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover. Our Times radio producer is Rosie Cutler and the podcast executive producer is Ben Mitchell. Now you can listen to us on the free Times radio app or you can download every episode from wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget that if you liked what you heard and thought, hey, I want to listen to this but live, 
Uh, then you can, Monday to Thursday, 3 till 5 on Times Radio. Yeah. Embrace the live radio jeopardy. Thank you for listening and hope you can join us off air very soon. Goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com